You are listening to an Elam Christian Center podcast. We hope that you are inspired, encouraged, and empowered by the message you are about to hear. Happy Sunday, everyone. It's good to have you guys with us. Thanks for coming and sharing the uh, 5 p.m. service with us. Welcome to any guests that are with us. If you're visiting for the first time, welcome. So glad you're here. Uh, my name's Steve. I'm a pastor here. And so just awesome to have you come and hang out with us. At the end of the service today, we're going to be taking communion together. So if you, um, if you didn't get that as you came in, we've got these little communion cups with uh, wafer and, and juice. If you didn't get that when you came in, the team's going to bring it around later on. And so just let them know later and... Uh, I'll give you plenty of time to know when that's going to be happening. I want to look at a story. This is the last part in our series called In the Beginning. In the Beninging. In the Beninging. If you don't know what that is, just go on YouTube, search In the Beginning, funny speech. It will make your night. Uh, We're going to go to Genesis chapter 4. We're looking at the story of two brothers called Cain and Abel. Bit of backstory, Cain and Abel are the sons of Adam and Eve, and um, as they grow up, they grow up, to, but one becomes a cultivator of the land, and the other one becomes a shepherd of flock. And so we pick up the story in Genesis chapter 4, starting in verse number 3, says this, When it was time for harvest, Cain presented some of his crops as a gift to the Lord. Abel also brought a gift, the best portions of the firstborn lambs of his flock. The Lord accepted Abel and his gift, but did not accept Cain and his gift. This made Cain very angry, and he looked dejected. Why are you so angry, the Lord asked Cain. Why do you look so dejected? You'll be accepted if you do what's right, but if you refuse to do what's right, then watch out. Sin is crouching at the door, eager to control you, but you must subdue it and be its master. Now, if you like drama in a story, then read on because one of the brothers kills the other brother. It gets a bit hectic. Um, But what's interesting about this story is that we see three things take place in it, which are almost the the first time those things are mentioned in Scripture. And I think some of these um, lessons that we can learn out of the story of Cain and Abel, um, even in this first little uh, portion of the Scripture, before we even get to the people dying part, is really powerful for our faith and for our life. And we learn some lessons about a few key things. And so I want to pull those out tonight. I pray they encourage you. I pray they stir your faith. I pray they help you in whatever journey you are on today. The first thing we learn about in this story is we learn about worship. We learn about worship. It's always been a little bit puzzling to me why God accepted one offering and not the other offering. Like I always felt that was a bit unfair. Like they both brought what they produced and God was like, I like it. I don't like it. He he liked one, he accepted one, he didn't accept the other. But the way we understand why God accepted one and not the other is found in the language used to describe what each of them brought. It says that Cain brought some of the, the produce of the land and Abel brought the best of the first of what he produced. One of them just brought some of, the other brought the best of the first. My wife, Bex, and I, we have been married in September. We'll be married for 18 years. We got married when we were 12. It's been a wonderful journey. It's one of those arranged marriages. You know what I'm talking about, Josh. It's been a wonderful journey. 18 years. Do you know what? 18 years of trying to figure each other out. I'm so sorry, Josh. I love you. It's the five o'clock. Stuff happens at the five, brother. Things get said that shouldn't be said at the 5 p.m. service. Oh, this is my third service of the day, brother. I'm, things get a bit wild. I've had 17 double-shot flat whites, and I'm ready to roll. But the journey of 18 years of marriage has been 18 years of trying to figure each other out. 
Anyone who's been married will tell you the journey of marriage is two very different people from very different families starting a journey together where you're like, we are so different. And you think so differently and you act and you, and you just, there's this clash of worlds. And so there's this constant journey of figuring one another out. And 18 years into the journey, I still don't understand this girl. I still don't understand her, friends. But because uh, you have different like love languages and different needs and like different ways that we show affection and understand affection and all this kind of stuff. And when we were first dating and I was trying to win her heart, you know what I used to do? I used to write her love poems. Now listen, every girl in the room's heart just melted. Boys, you were like, that's so lame. It's not lame, they love it. <laughs> write the poems. I used to write her love poems and love letters. She kept them all, she still has them. <laughs> and all these boys sitting there going, how do we get girls? Write the poem, bro. Josh, write the poem. Roses are red, violets are blue, my name's Josh, I love you. That's <laughs> but you know, as you progress in your relationship and as our marriage has gone, like we got together, we started dating when Bex was 16 years old. We were high school sweethearts. And <laughs> lots of arms today. But along the journey of like being married and stuff, you don't always put as much effort in as you used to put in, right? And so Vex often will say to me, babe, I used to love it when you wrote me poems. Could you write? I just want you to write me. It makes me feel so special when you write me letters and write me poems. And, and after 18 years of marriage, I'm like, it's, yeah, but it's hard work. Like it takes a lot of effort to write poems. So what I recently discovered was a thing called ChatGPT. <laughs> i tell you what, this is no lie. For the last month, I've been writing her daily poems through ChatGPT. It's the most wonderful thing. I'll give her multiple poems a day through ChatGPT, but to my dismay, they're not working. She doesn't like them. She sees right through the facade. She, it's like what used to communicate my love for her, she's now like angry at me. Now, it's like she's getting more upset at me the more poems I write and I'm thinking to myself I'm giving you what you want from me but what I'm not giving her is what she really wants see she doesn't just want words on paper she wants my heart and to show her affection and show her love it actually has to cost me something to communicate that it's not just the leftover words or the chat GPT write my wife a short love poem I actually have one on my phone I was going to share it with you but that's for another time Josh will share his later See, the heart of worship, the heart of worship and bringing something before God is understanding what it requires of you and what it requires of me. See, worship and, and bringing something of worship to God, it has to cost you something. Bringing something of worship to God, it's not about just giving God the leftovers or the afterthought or the lip service or coming and clapping your hands and singing a couple of songs and get, ticking the box and getting it over with. See, God doesn't just require something of your life. He requires the best of the first. It's not just, God, I'm going to give you the leftover. I'm going to give you what's left. I'm going to give you the afterthought or I've got a little bit of spare time or this in my life. No, no, God, the, the true worship requires giving God the best of our first. That's why we do church on Sundays, by the way, because it's the very first day of the week. And so on the very first day of the week, we give God the best of our first. 
That's why I encourage every person to meet with God every morning. Why? Give God the best of your first. Don't leave it till later in the day. Give God the best of your first. That's why this whole thing called tithing exists in the church. Why? Because we don't just bring God some of what we have or uh, the leftovers of what we have. God gets the very best of the first. Wow. You see that all throughout Scripture. And I think some of you maybe are even frustrated in your faith today, but the reality is God just has some of your life. He doesn't have the best of it. God might just get the afterthought of your life. He doesn't get the first and the best. The question is, does God get the first and best of you or does he just get some of you? And some of you are frustrated. You feel, oh, this God thing's not working. It's, oh, I'm just frustrated on this journey. Well, that's maybe because you're just giving God the leftover of you. When God's heart and his desire is that you would, you're giving God the chat GPT version of you. When God really desires your heart, he desires the first and the best of your life in your school, in your workplace, in your university, in what you put your hand to, in your day, in your prayer, in everything that you do. Uh, my, my question to you is, friends, is God getting the best of you? Is he getting the first of you? Or does he just get a little bit of what's left over at the end of your week, or at the end of your day? Because worship really requires the best of the first. The second thing we learn about in this scripture is we learn about second chances. It's the first time we see this whole second chance thing play out in Scripture. Uh, do we have any golfers in the house? Any golfers? Anyone play golf? A few golfers in the house? Yeah, there's a very excited golfer down there. Wow, brother. So I play golf, but very badly. I don't play a lot of golf. I play maybe like three or four rounds of golf a year, but I don't play very well. I just, uh, my golf game is more like a giant outdoor game of hide and seek. It's like I hit the ball, it hides from me, I spend the next four hours looking for the ball, and I, don't, I never really find my ball, I just find another random ball, I claim it's mine and don't tell anyone. So that's golf for me. But one of the things I like to do in golf is add rules that make it more fun. And one of my rules is I call it the second chance rule. Now the second chance rule goes like this, if, you, if I set up a ball on the tee and, and you hit the ball and it doesn't go very far, it's like a bit of a dud shot, you've got 30 seconds to go and get that ball, bring it back, put it on the tee, and then hit it again. And if you can do all of that within 30 seconds, the first one doesn't count. It's the second chance rule. It's a great rule, my brother. You got it, yeah, yeah. So if you're playing with someone, you just go, start counting, and that 29, 20, and you're just gassing it down the green, get your ball back on the tee, hit it again. It's the second chance rule, it's a great rule. You know in our faith, it, this faith journey is a journey filled with second chances. It's a journey filled with have another go. So you gotta understand people, like you're not gonna get this right all the time. As you walk this journey with God and as you follow Jesus and you endeavor to do it with your whole heart, you're going to miss the mark. You're going to fail. And I, like, you know, this is a great encouraging word from, from your preacher, isn't it? It's like, listen, you're gonna follow Jesus and be rubbish at it. You're gonna, you're gonna try and follow Jesus and you're gonna fail. And you're never gonna, you're never gonna match up. You're never gonna hit the standard. You, there's gonna be an ideal that you have in your head of what it means to follow Jesus and you're never gonna get there. How encouraging, Danielle. You're gonna miss the mark. But praise God we serve a God of second chances. Praise God we serve a God who knows you're not gonna hit it all the time and knows you're gonna mess it up and knows you're not gonna get it right. And in this passage, like God gives Cain a second chance. He says, hey, if you do what's right, you'll be accepted. Like you missed the mark, you knew what you were supposed to do, but you didn't do it. But if you do it, if you do what you're supposed to do, you, you'll be accepted. This, this journey with God is not about perfection. And I, you need to understand this, especially some of you young people. 
You've got to understand this journey with God is not about perfection. It's not about always getting it right. It's not about showing up the church squeaky clean all the time and like you never sin and you never mess up and you always get it right. It's not about a life of perfection. It's about a life of relentless pursuit of God every single day, even when you're not perfect, even when you mess up. And even when you sin, and every, even when you fall and you stumble, it's that heart that goes, I'm going to keep going after God in greater measure than I did yesterday. That's what the Christian journey is really like. It's not one where you never mess up. It's one where you learn to get up when you do mess up. I might not be perfect. I might get this wrong. But you know what, what I'm going to do? I'm going to go after God again today. Yeah, I've, I've, I keep missing the mark, but I'm going to trust that God's love and God's grace is big enough, and I'm not made right with God because of what I do, but because of what Jesus did on that cross, and His grace is sufficient for me, so I'm not going to use that as a license to sin, but what I am going to use it to do is get myself up from where I am and go back after God again. God's response to Cain is, if you do what's right, you'll be accepted. What that communicates is that Cain knew what was wrong with his first offering. Like it's implied, we were like, oh, poor Cain. How is he supposed to know? Oh, no, he knew. Because God's like, if you do what's right, you'll be accepted. So that implies Cain knew what was right. And so God gives him the opportunity to do it right the next time. He doesn't give him an opportunity to put right the wrong, because you can't do that. He's not saying, hey, you can undo the wrong thing by doing the right thing. No, he gives him an opportunity just to do it right the next time. Friends, you cannot make right your yesterday, but you can determine to do right in your tomorrow. Like, getting this right is not about fixing the sin from yesterday. Trust the grace of God for yesterday and, and move forward and determine to do right in your tomorrow. If you messed up, if you showed up to church today and you messed up yesterday, good for you. Well done. It's the best thing you could possibly do is to get up and go after Jesus again. The people that you find worshiping God and preaching, and you know what, who they are? They're not the people that were the most perfect. They were the people that got up the most. When they fell and when they stumbled, they determined, I'm going to go after God again. I'm not going to let that hold me back, but I'm going to go after God and what He has for my life. If you fall down, get back up again. The Bible says this, Proverbs 24. It says, the righteous may fall seven times, yet they get up again. Yet they get up again. If you're here today and you've fallen over, here's the word of the Lord for you. Get up again. Get up again and go after God. I wonder who in this room needs a second chance from God. I wonder who is sitting in this room is saying, I'm so unworthy of being here. I, I, like, I came in here f with fear and trembling because I thought lightning was going to strike me when I walked in the door because I'm such a mess. Well, praise God you're here. Praise God you're here. Maybe God is extending to you today a second chance to go and do the right thing in your tomorrow. Like Jesus said to those he caught in sin, just go and sin no more. Like don't stay broken in the sin. Actually get up and go and sin no more. The third thing we learn about is actually we learn about sin. We learn about sin in this story. It says, um, God says to Cain, sin is crouching at your door and it desires to have you. It desires to control you. But he says, but you must control it and be its master. I was recently in Vietnam. Uh, a few weeks back, I was in Vietnam and it was, we were blessed to have a couple of the young bucks join us over there in Vietnam Sam Vincent and uh, the King Kong man, a.k.a. the bed breaker. Christian Edwin was with us. Very first night in Vietnam, Christian's bed broke under his weight. Fantastic. So many of you will know 
I love dogs. I love dogs. I have two dogs of my own, two wonderful dogs, give me lots of love and affection. I love dogs. If I see a dog out there in the world, I have to, like, it takes everything in me not to be the psycho stalker and go and meet that dog. My, my wife, she's always like, Stevie, calm down. Like, you need to relax. It's like you're being a bit too intense with the dogs. I just can't handle it. If I'm walking on, there's a dog with his head out the window. I'm like, oh, like, I just, I start to lose it. Love dogs. You know what I learned in Vietnam? Dog is on the menu. Legit. Dog's on the menu in Vietnam. And so I learned while we were there that dog is for eating. And I thought to myself, that's so wrong. I, I was like, I know culturally there's stuff going on and I, I, I get all that, but I just, I couldn't kind of comprehend it. And we were talking to like our interpreters, our translators about it. And they like, they're like, yeah, man, we have it for Christmas dinner. Like it's the, it's the jam. And I'm like, no. And they're like, would you like to try some? And I was like, no, I, there's no way, I couldn't do that. If I ate dog and I went home, my dogs would sniff me and they'd know. They'd be like, traitor, like they would know. They would know, man, I, I just couldn't reconcile, I couldn't get my head around the idea of eating a dog. And then they said to me, well, would you try some cat? And I thought, maybe. <laughs> I, wouldn't, I wouldn't turn my nose up if it had a bit of cat, like, I don't, I love dogs. Dogs are awesome. Cats, they're just like, um, they're just mean. <laughs> and, and I'm a little bit allergic to cats. Like I get itchy eyes and like, I mean, I, if you're a cat person in here, that's fine. This just probably isn't the church for you. I'm, not, I'm just joking. I'm just, I'm just playing with you. I'm playing. We, we accept everybody. Just come as you are, cat people. Um, I don't really have a great relationship with cats. I feel like cats are just like, just mean and they, they're using you. Like, dogs love you, cats are using you. They, they, have, they have no affection for you, they just want what they can get out of you. The, cats are the animals that will watch you as they smash your glass off the table and look you in the eye like it ain't no thing. Uh, I had some bad experiences with cats. My grandma had a cat called Tiddles. <laughs> and t Tiddles would, would, would scratch you for no reason. You walk past Tiddles, whammy, you got a big cat scratch down your leg. Flippin' tiddles. And I remember we lived in this house up in Whangarei and there was this local cat in the neighborhood and it would just always come in our house. Like, and I get quite itchy eyes and like runny nose from cats. And this cat would always come in the house. So I was constantly finding this cat and putting it out of the house and constantly getting out of the house. It was like got to the point where you put it out the door and then you shut the door and then it's like, it's right there. You know, it's like the cat is just like, he's like super speed. He's like Sonic the Hedgehog. He's in the house, man. And uh, I figured out what this cat would do was it would hide in the hedge by our front door and wait for the door to open. So you think you got rid of it and then it's just lurking in the bush. And then as soon as you open the door, it's like, it's in the house. I'd eat that cat. I'd eat him. <laughs> he deserves it. bit of cat kebab. Pretty sure you could biltong a cat, I reckon. <laughs> oh, jeepers. So, when God describes the nature of sin and what it's like, it's a bit like the cat at their front door. It is, it is this intruder. It's like a stalker, sin. It's like this criminal that's just waiting outside your door. 
It's crouching, it's waiting. And it's all it's waiting for is a little open door. Like it doesn't need a big invitation. He says that sin is lurking, it's creeping, it's crouching, it's waiting. It's like a criminal just sitting there waiting for its opportunity to pounce. And if the door opens to it, guess what it does? It comes in and takes control. It says it desires to have you. In other words, it desires to have its way with you. It desires to take mastery over you. It desires to take control over your life, over your decisions and your thoughts and your actions. It wants to be the thing that compels you and leads you and drives you into all different manner of things in your life. That's the nature of sin. And it's just there watching and waiting, looking for any little open door. And friends, here's what I've learned. It doesn't matter how long you've walked with Jesus or how close you walk with Jesus, sin is never far away. What do you think these pastors and preachers fall? Why? It's never far away. It's crouching at the door, sitting there waiting for any little opportunity just to come on in and bust through that door. And God says to Cain, but you've got to be its master. You've got to master it. It wants to control you, but you have to control it. I was digging a fence, some fence posts at our house last year, and Pastor Dean Openshaw was helping me. Pastor Dean's... Um, He's at home with an injury. I didn't cause the injury, by the way. It just he, he, He's at home injured. He had, he had operation on his shoulder, but he's not the largest man on the planet. And he was coming to help me dig some fence post holes. And what we did was we hired a two-man fence post hole driller. And you, you, it's like a big drill thing, drill with a big motor and two handles, one on each side. And you've got to hold on to these things really tightly because they drill like crazy. And if the drill gets stuck on a rock or something, the drill stops and the top spins like super hard. And so you've got to be holding and pushing on this thing. And so we were drilling and, and like Pastor Dean, is, he's, not, he's, he's not a big man. And we're on the drill and the drill got stuck on a rock and the top just spun so violently like it ripped out of my hands and I let go, but Pastor Dean didn't let go. So next thing you know, there's, like Dean's like 63 years old. So there's, there's this 63-year-old man, he's a grandfather, holding on to the drill auger and he spins around the thing, like totally horizontal with the ground and he flies three meters across and lands on my front lawn. He did have surgery for a busted shoulder. I'm not taking responsibility for that, by the way. What you gotta realize with a machine like that, you control it or it controls you. It's only two ways. Either you take control and you determine what happens or it will throw you and move you and shake you and push you in places you didn't wanna go. See, the journey of every Christian is to gain control and mastery over the sin that the Bible says so easily entangles our lives. Like sin wants to get in and tangle you up and control you and move you and direct you and cause you to go in places and do things that you never wanted to do. And it's really interesting that from the very beginning when God talks about sin in the Bible, He says, it desires to have you, but you've got to control it. It doesn't say, it desires to have you, so ask me and I'll take it away. And some of us say you're frustrated, you go, God, take this away, the sin in your life. Some of you are dealing with some sin and it, it's like it's hanging around and it's taking control. You're going, God, take it away, God, take it away, God, take it away. Maybe God's saying, take control. You've got to master it. And so many of us, we're just waiting for God to magically come in and go with his little magic wand and go, boom, you're all better now. And there are moments where God does a miracle and takes away desire. But right here in the very beginning, God's like, it's waiting for you and you've got to master it. 
from the very beginning, the very first book, God's like, sin's waiting, and it's crouching, and it wants to take control. So you, my friend, have to be the one that's its master. You're the one that has to take control. And I don't know like, who you are or what your journey is, what your story is, and I don't know whether sin might have taken control in your life. Josh, you want to join me, bro? I don't know if sin has found a home through an open door in your own life. But I do know this. Here's what I know. We are all sinners saved by grace. Every one of us. All sinners saved by grace. I'm not perfect. You're not perfect. And here's the beginning point of fixing this. If you want to kick sin out the door so it no longer has a hold, the first step is this. It's very simple. It's this thing we call repentance. Repentance. So the Bible says that in 1 John 1, 9, it says, if we confess our sins to God, He's faithful and just to forgive, it, forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So there's forgiveness for you if you just confess it to God. How wonderful, how beautiful, how easy. And then in the book of James, it says, if we confess our sins one to another, He's we will find healing on that journey. So, so if I confess my sins to God, God will forgive me and I'm, and I'm washed clean in the eyes of God. How amazing. And then if I confess it to a brother or, or someone on the journey with me, what happens is I actually find there's a healing that takes place. So there's this beautiful, beautiful exchange that happens as we just enter into confession. But there's this thing called repentance and the, that's the beginning point for everybody. It's the beginning point. Repentance means this. I'm walking one way living one way in sin. Now I'm going to repent. And to repent means I'm going to turn and I'm going to go a different way. And, and, and the root word around repentance actually means to turn back to your original creator design, to go back towards the creator and his design for you in your life. So I'm living one way in sin and I'm going about my, like letting sin control me, but I'm going to repent. I don't want that anymore. I'm going to turn and go a different way. And I'm go- the different way is this. I'm going to go God's way. I'm going to begin to live the way he's asking and calling me to live. We are all sinners saved by grace. And the beginning point, and listen, there's a whole bunch of other stuff you can do to deal with kick sin out of your life. Get accountable, talk to somebody, get some counseling. I don't know. There's a whole bunch of stuff you can think about doing. But the beginning point is simply repentance. Saying, God, I don't want to live that way anymore. And so I want to turn away from it and go a different way. Thank you for listening to this Elam Christian Center podcast. Please subscribe to keep hearing more life-changing messages. For more information about our church, please visit www.elamchristiancenter.org.nz.